walk through First and Second Thessalonians, and I want to get into a gospel. We did Mark five years ago. I want to jump into Matthew now, and as the schedule would have it, right, we're going to be entering the holiday season pretty soon, unbelievably, and so I want to start Matthew where Matthew starts uh, in significance of the time that it starts in. So we're going to start Matthew for Advent, but we got six weeks in between there, and I'm going to kind of take a, a biblical, uh, practical theology look at the what's and why's of some major categories. So we're going to go more topical in our sermons for the next six weeks. We're going to have a guest speaker. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing here until we get into Matthew uh, during Advent. So as you've made your way to Ephesians 5, let us pause and pray. Our Father God, we are experiencing and witnessing your mercy and grace now. Your word is open. We are set to receive from you, Lord, instruction, hopefully wisdom, Lord, hopefully the beauty of what you have created in this world and established and ordained. And so would you please do that for us? Would you please allow us to have a feast here in your word, to be edified, to be strengthened, to be corrected, to be moved into further holiness for your glory and our good and the good of our brothers and sisters. Lord, would you even call your lost sheep to yourself? Father, we acknowledge that we come before you imperfect, stained with the filth of our unrighteousness this week and even maybe this morning. We ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you would cause us to walk in a manner worthy, and that you would see fit, Lord, even to bless us this morning. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm speaking to you this morning on sanctification in marriage. This is a message that was delivered to some that gathered in northwest Missouri in September uh, for the express purpose of growing in their understanding God's purpose for marriage. And I thought that this would be a great thing to share with my church, my people. And so we're going to be talking about specifically focusing on, on Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. And the express purpose for marriage. And even more specifically, uh, you married men in this room are going to get most of this instruction for yourselves because of simply how Paul has ordered this in Ephesians. And we'll look at that in just a minute. But there's a greater purpose, right, for marriage. And I hope that if you're sitting here this morning, you understand what that is. You can skim down in Ephesians 5 to verse 32 and you can see that. That, that marriage is the illustration of the gospel. 
It's not the end-all, be-all. We are told, as Jesus instructs people who ask him, that we will not be given uh, to each other in marriage in heaven. That we will know each other on a more intimate, deeper level as brothers and sisters in Christ, existing in his glory than we do now as man and wife. It's a mind-blowing thought. I can't imagine or comprehend what that means, but I know that that is the reality. That's the truth. But while we're waiting for that, while we are existing here as Christ's ambassadors in this world, and while we are being uh, given in marriage one to another, we have an express purpose for it. And that's the gospel. And so men, specifically this morning, as we look at these verses, we are looking at mainly our responsibility as we kind of exist in this illustration as Christ to our wife, as she exists as the church underneath her Lord. And what is the goal of us being husbands to our wives? And Paul makes it pretty clear because it's the purpose of Jesus toward his church. We are to make sure, as Christ makes sure, that his church is washed in the word. And we're going to flesh out what that means. But essentially, we are to take a mandate that actually was given in Genesis 2.15 through 18. And, and as we have understood now the reality of Christ's work and his redemption and his existence at the Father's right hand interceding for us, we are to take that mandate and watch that play out so that our bride is sanctified, which is made more holy, pure, blameless, without wrinkle or spot or any such thing, so that she is presented to Christ in that manner because that's what he's doing with his whole church. That's the purpose of why his church is existing and moving through this life in such a way. That's why, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, he gave teachers and preachers and the like so that his people are equipped or made whole or ready for what he's called them to do and who he's called them to be. And then one day, that is going to be brought to him as his gift, as his prize, as his bride. And so you and I, as we're in Christ, get to live out this illustration and display to the world what the gospel is, simply by being married in his name. Powerful. And we're going to show you, for instance, why this is probably the most hated institution outside of the church by Satan. Why he would hate marriage so much because of what it does. So I'm going to take three passages, namely Ephesians 5, 25-27, but also Genesis 2 and 1 Peter 3, and we're going to watch this happen. We're going to be instructed, okay? So in Genesis 2, 15-18, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'll tell you a story, a personal story. I don't like to, but this is a pretty good one. Um, on the eve of my wedding uh, to dear Miss Tiffany, um, we were at the rehearsal, as one would be, and while the ladies were making sure that everything was up to uh, snuff, uh, me and my groomsmen had some time to kill. And so we're standing around, and uh, my pastor at the time, who was the one that's going to officiate the wedding, he decided to take this opportunity to tell us a story in light of the events. And it's a, it's a pretty well-known story. It's a pretty well-used parable, probably even in the Middle East. But there is a, was a point in time, and probably still is in places throughout the world, where there was such a thing that existed as a dowry, okay? There was something that came along with the bride, a payment, usually in livestock, that would display her worth and her value to the potential mate that her family wanted for her, that they wanted to obtain for her. And so in this particular instance, there was used cattle. And there was a very eligible bachelor in one village, and he had all these families of the village throwing their daughters at him with their um, luxurious dowries, their mini cattle and all of the such. Well, eventually he decided on one woman who only came with one cow. So the lesser the cows, maybe the less valuable the woman. So this is a one-cow woman. According to her own family, she's a one-cow woman. Now that's an insult to injury, isn't it? But he decided that that's the one he wanted. So, to the uh, confusion of everyone in the village, he decided to marry her. And after marrying her, they went away to live uh, in a part of the country that he ob obtained a, a large amount of land on. And so they went and they lived there. And after some years, they came back. And as he arrived back in his hometown, people were uh, amazed at what they saw. They figured his wife had died, and he'd finally found a woman suitable enough for him. As this beautiful woman got off the boat, this gracious and kind woman got off the boat with him into the village. And, and they said, well, what happened to the first wife that you went away with? Did you finally come to your senses and get rid of her? He said, no, it's the same girl, same woman. How did she go from being a one-cow woman to like a ten-cow woman? <laughs> How did that happen? Well, the parable of the story is that it came through the love of her husband. He drew out the beauty that was within. Right? And, and you know, <laughs> when I was looking at my wife come down the aisle, that was no one-cow woman. I was getting the whole ten-cow picture. All right, in the sense of her value, okay? Let's get that clear. In the sense of her value, 
That's, that's a 10-cow woman coming down the aisle. But, but, but I knew this. I knew this. That as amazing and marvelous and glorious as she was coming down that aisle, that God's work in her heart that I had witnessed from the moment we got together was going to expand and grow so that by the time we're 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, Lord willing, that woman is going to be a million times more beautiful than what I was looking at then. I was convinced. I was stupid in a lot of ways when I was 23. Still am. But I was convinced that God, and, and through teaching me how to love her, was going to make her something more even glorious than I was watching come towards me. And that's our goal as husbands. Do you understand that that's Christ's goal for the church? That, that you are becoming a prize to him. Right now we have all sorts of wrinkles and warts and blemishes and, and troubles and problems and all this sort of stuff. But my confidence, especially in being a pastor here, is the fact that he is going to make this his prized bride. Period. It will succeed in that. So focus here on Ephesians 5. I want you to notice some stats real quick. There's 115 words for husbands here versus 40 words for wives. That's nine verses to three. That's two-thirds of, of Paul's thoughts poured out on page here to wives and husbands that are directed towards the husbands. Does that mean the wife's off the hook and she's, her role's not as important? No. It's, it's that what this is representing is, is displaying the utter importance of the husband being he sh- who he should be. If he's not, then you don't have a full picture of the gospel. If the husband is not careful to do what he's been instructed to do and to be who he's instructed to be and to love in the way that Christ loved, then you don't have the Christ figure, which is the most important part of the gospel. You don't have the Savior. You don't have the Lord. You don't have the one who cleanses and makes blameless. So let's look at the responsibility that's been given to Adam in the garden that is made more clear here in the gospel. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work means to toil, to labor. Many of you are familiar with that concept. To keep it means to protect or to guard, to watch it over. Next, in this passage in Genesis, he's given what? The word. The word of God. He's given the command there in verse 15, and God continues to speak to him. He has the word of God. His only defense in the garden to keep it, to protect it, to guard it, to watch over it, is to keep God's word. To do what he has expressly said to do and to not do. Keep in mind, there are no other humans in existence who could invade The animals are probably living in harmony with him. What's he guarding it from? God knows what he's going to turn loose in the garden. What he is going to subject creation to in hopes that, if you read Romans 8, what's going to happen as a result of this. But he's going to subject it to the temptations from the evil one who is being thrown 
down from heaven by Michael and his archangels. And his only defense is the word of God and the express commands given him by God. That's how he's going to do battle with the evil one. That's how he's going to do battle with the, with the only um, invasion that is possible to disrupt the peace of the garden. And I think it's very interesting that Satan enters into the narrative at that point in time. Adam's alone in the garden for a little bit. He doesn't come then. He only comes when Eve is created and the acknowledgement of their union is made clear. Martin Luther says there is no estate to which Satan is more opposed as to marriage. I firmly believe that. Because Satan, sadly, understands more about marriage than some of us. He understands the powerful reality of what it displays if it is lived out according to the express commands of God in light of the gospel. We just talked about this in Sunday school. Satan lives to blind the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you get rid of marriage... That's a good way to do it. So he hates it. He hates this utter powerful display of the gospel which exists across the world. He started out there. He knew what this could be. He knew what this could do to the world. So it's at that point in time that he directs his greatest energies to trying to ruin what God has created. Look now in Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He is directing his attention to husbands, kind of mirroring a command that was given to Adam in the garden. Here's what you have. Here's what you have to grow and to cultivate. Here's this beautiful thing that God has made and he's put it into your care and your protection. And the first directive is to love her, your wives. And he tells you how, as Christ loved. Loved what? The church. And how do you love the church? He gave himself up for her. He gave himself for her good. You understand that this directly opposes any tyrannical domineering posture in marriage by the husband. If you understand how Christ loves his church, you will not rule over your wife and lord it over her. You will love her, as 1 Peter 3 is going to tell us, as the weaker vessel. You're going to give her what is good for her. And as Paul's going to say later on, you're going to cherish her and nourish her as your own body. It's that intimate. It it is that close. And notice the the greater reality he's pointing out. That's, That's what Christ does, did. What did the church need? She needed him. What do our wives need? They need him too. I was going to say you. No, they don't need you. They need the word. They need him. 
once you can get to that, then you can really give your wives something. He gave her himself for her good. That's what she needed. Verse 26, why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. In other words, he made her holy. If he didn't, then she'd be lost in her unholiness, her uncleanness. That's why Hosea and his instruction from the Lord to marry a prostitute, Gomer, is amazing. That he is prophesying and proclaiming how he will love his people. That he will go get them in the midst of their uncleanness and marry them, wed them to himself, and make them clean. He will buy them from the filth and the auction block of all depravity, and he will make them his. That is Christ coming to earth and getting his bride, paying for what he already owned, her. She'd been become enslaved to her sin and filth. And out of his love, he gave himself as payment to cleanse her and to get her back from where she was. In verse 26, that phrase, having cleansed, is a verb that Greek nerds know as aorist active. What's that mean? Well, I wouldn't know either unless I wrote it down. No definite point in time other than that it is happening and will be completed with the greatest degree of surety. Having cleansed is something that is happening. It didn't happen just one time. It is happening, and it will be completed. That's why cleansed is in the past tense. It is your, us, Our becoming spotless, without wrinkle, blameless, is happening, and it will be done. That's that golden chain of Romans 8 that ends with being glorified, past tense. That's that uh, instruction in Philippians that tells us that he who began a good work in us will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. That's the confidence you can have as you're stumbling and bumbling and tripping and and seeing yourself as not the, the clean... Uh, bride or people of Christ, he'll get it done. He'll not get it done in spite of you. He'll bring you along with it. Your desires will grow for him. It's not like he came and bought you off of that filthy auction block and you still want to go back to it. It's that you are, are, are what is that being unveiled before you every day is his love. You are learning more and more, deeper and deeper, just how much he loves you, and that is expanding your mind and your heart to receive that love and to desire nothing else but that so that you are putting everything else behind you. You're keeping your eyes on what's in front of you and moving past what's behind you. That's why the whole purpose is that you, that I, would see him. That's why, husbands, the whole point here 
It's not that they see how much we love them, but they see that Christ's love through us is loving them, therefore pointing them back to him as the source. Because they need him. And this aorist active, this no definite point in time other than that it, it is a reality that is existing, that is happening, and that it will be completed, reminds us of the first part of this book in Ephesians 1, where it tells us in love what Christ did, does, and will do. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you see that in love, Jesus chose us for his own, for adoption? so that his grace would be forever praised and we would already be receiving the blessing of being his. In love, he did this. And if we talk about cleansed for a second, right, that's the whole, that's the whole active part of this. Um, that's the work of Genesis 2.15. That's the working the garden. Men, that's, that's, that's our greatest work, is making sure what we have been entrusted with and all of its beauty would be not only preserved, but would grow and flourish in that beauty. That it would be sprouting all sorts of beauty. Now, how did Jesus do this? How does he do this? Well, it says in that last half of verse 26, by the washing of water with the word. In other words, they're word cleansed. The church is word cleansed. Our wives are going to be word cleansed. The word, which presents to us all holiness, all righteousness, all we need to know of God and his grace and his mercy is what is causing us to be Cleansed. That's why the word is of utmost importance to us. John 15, 3, Jesus tells his disciples, Already you are clean. Why? Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Isn't he the God who can cleanse the leper? He's the only one who can make clean. He's the only one who can wash in the sense that you are truly clean. We can wash the outside, we can dip in water, but we can't do what Jesus can do. We can't scrub the inside. We can't take away the filth and replace it with a purity of righteousness that only exists by his declaration. And his declaration is done by his word, his speaking that. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage 
and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it, was, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Notice what Paul instructs Timothy is happening there, that some people are forbidding marriage as unclean and an impure thing, and if they're going to really be the people of God, then they have to stay away from those things, and marriage is probably one of those. Now, what's he say? He said, no, if it's created by God, it's good, and it's made holy, how? By the word of God and prayer. By the word of God and prayer. You want a holy wife? You want a holy marriage? Give her the word and pray that that word does its work. Pray that that word cleanses her as Jesus said it does. If we believe he creates by his word, then that must even mean he creates and cleanses a pure bride by his word. He's going to make a people. He's going to establish his church. He's going to present something before him blameless and spotless at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. He's going to do it. This is how he's going to do it. Do you want to be a part of that? Some people might say, well, you know, washing of the water with the word, we got to read the word, you know, exactly literal. Uh, so maybe that's baptism, right? Well, we talked about baptism a few weeks ago, but Jesus says in Matthew, John says in Matthew 3.11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We're trying to get, or I'm trying to get across the point that it has to be Jesus. If we have any hope of seeing our wives become any more than that tin cow woman that came down the aisle, we want her to be infinitely worth many cows. We want her to be so much more than we understand she could be. And that requires Jesus. That's his work. That's where our trust is. That's where our dependence is. That's where our reliance is on him. And he does it also through his Holy Spirit, which is him. And so what does the Spirit do in this? Well, he says in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or his word, the Holy Spirit, will apply his word. These are his mechanisms. This is him personally engaged in the work of making you clean, purifying you. So it's not, and this sounds a little off, but, but it's not just the word. It's the Holy Spirit taking that word and applying it all over your heart until you are painted with the pure holiness and righteousness of God that is re in reflected in who you are and what you do and what you think and how you feel. It's Him. He is the Word, the Spirit. It's Him. John 16, 13 through 14 when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Uh, paraphrase. He'll make sure you get it. You'll hear things from your, okay, husbands, listen. You are, you are not the power in your wife's life to make her holy. You're going to give her the word. You can, you can speak truth to her all day to your blue in the face. Until the Spirit applies that to her, there won't be any fruit. But what are we promised here? He will. He will declare it to her. And guess what? What you told her five years ago may not come to fruition until five years later. For whatever purposes the Spirit has in her specific life, that's what he's doing. You're faithful in giving her the word. And you're praying that the Lord would cause that to to make her uh, what he's making her. And you're confident in the fact that he will do that. Do you have a timeline of how that's going to happen? No. But don't let that cause you frustration. Just stay in the hope that if he loves her, if you know that she is his, he'll do it. He'll do it. Side note, back to Genesis 2.15, how does he keep or protect with the word? Ephesians 6.17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So Adam's not defenseless in the garden. We're not defenseless in our families. What do we have? We have the word of God. If our battle is not against flesh and blood, but like Adam and Eve against those spiritual forces that seek to come against all that is of God, then we have the greatest defense available. We have the greatest weapon. So this, this tells us husbands to be so intent on our understanding and application of the word that, that we have God's protection and God's mechanism for making a holy wife and hopefully holy children at our disposal. Therefore, the practical application is, men, know the word. If you don't know the word, good luck with your house. Good luck when Satan uh, comes roaming around seeking to who he can devour. Now look at 1 Peter 3, 7. Here's where we're going to more practically apply all this, okay? Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See what he's, Peter's saying there? Understand who you're caring for and love them in the instruction that you've been given in the gospel and so that when you pray for them, they're not, those prayers aren't hindered. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be answer in the positive. In other words, you can't treat your wife one way and then Ask that uh, she grows in holiness over here. Be consistent. Put them together. There's a a book that was produced uh, by Ligonier Ministries and published. It's called The Masculine Mandate by Richard Phillips. 
And there's a section in there where he specifically deals with 1 Peter 3, 7. And, and the summarization of what he's saying is basically, do you know what's going on with your wife spiritually? Or do you simply know, like, you provided a house, you provided a car, you provided insurance, you provided a 401k, you provided this and that. Maybe even a Starbucks on the side. No. Do you know what's going on with her spiritually? Do you know what she's encountering that could affect her in some of the ways that she has yet to fully blossom in her spirit? Do you know what's tempting her? Do you know what's discouraging her? Do you know what's causing her to even weaken in her faith? Do you know the root of those things? Are you at all concerned with it? I would argue, actually, through Scripture, that's our greatest concern, men, if you're married, is her spiritual health. What is Christ's greatest concern for his church? Same thing. Just spend time in the letters. And what is he pouring out through these apostles? Concern for the church that she would move out of this or be protected from that and that she would grow in her understanding and her full knowledge of God through the word. That good would come to her, that glory would come to God. That's, that's what all these letters are essentially getting at. Because that's Christ's concern for his bride. So we have to ask ourselves, is that our concern for a bride, their spiritual health? So, um, verse 27, we can kind of answer this question. What's this all for? Where's this all leading to? Um, essentially, it's for Jesus, right? <laughs> but this is how and why he does this. This is how and why he does this. So that he might present the church to himself. See that? It's for him. Him presenting the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What's splendor? Splendor is beauty. The all-encompassing glory, right, that leads you speechless when you see her, or just in awe of what you're actually witnessing. Without spot or wrinkle, spot, soiled clothing, discolorations, impurity, Wrinkle relates to the effects of age, the effects of the fall. We decay over time because of the fall. Well, what's Christ going to see when, he's, when his church is presented before him? Something without end. An eternally beautiful, pure bride. She won't decay. She won't be soiled with sin. She will be eternally beautiful and eternally his. That's what he's getting after. That's what he's doing here. That's what he's doing here. I have a a pillow in my office. It was given to me because of my weird infatuation with bears. But it says something pretty good on it, right? It says, advice from a bear. Look after your honey. 
There we go. Yeah. Okay. Right? Uh, let's boil that all down. Look after your wife. Guard her. Keep her. Cultivate a holiness in her. By looking only unto Jesus. By bringing her there. Taking her by the hand and bringing her there. And bringing her there is bringing her to the word. It's, it's placing her under that. It is, it is taking that and washing her. The church, this is a guarantee, she will be beautiful and holy. She will. Because Jesus, as the greatest husband that will ever exist, is going to make sure that his bride is. Well, are you about the same things that Jesus is, husband? If you are, then you will be a, a Bible man. You'll have something to give to your wife, something that she needs. And so I, I, I pray now that you take these next few moments and pray to that effect or just ask God to make you this man for your wife and, or that you just pray for her and then we'll stand and sing.